Good evening, everyone, or good morning, good afternoon, if you're joining us online from somewhere else. I'm Sarah Pantuliano, the Chief Executive at ODI, and I'm just delighted to welcome everyone to our event tonight on Gaza, the politics of narrative. Um, at ODI, through our teams, in particular the Humanitarian Policy Group and the Politics and Governance team, we've been following the crisis in Gaza and commenting on the crisis since the very beginning on the 7th of October. Um, we've released a statement, we've issued blogs, we've accompanied, we've uh, um, recorded a podcast, we've tried to analyze what's been happening, um, bring the perspective both from the perspective of the law as humanitarians, but also, you know, the perspective of uh, the incredible suffering of civilians that we've seen, you know, from the beginning of um, of the crisis and bring the voices of people that have been less represented in uh, the whole discourse around the crisis. And we felt it was very important to also have a discussion on the politics that the different narratives uh, that shape the different narratives um, it's an important conversation when conflicts start um, the way in which they are portrayed the way in which the news are conveyed the the people that get to speak about the conflicts shape the public um, imagery and and how people feel about the crisis and so it's important that we interrogate these issues a bit you know more in depth um, and reflect on what who we're hearing and who we're hearing it from tells us about the crisis. So we have a fantastic group of colleagues tonight that are helping us reflect on this. Um, my colleague, Katrin Wajakoda, who is the director of our politics and governance um, group at ODI, will moderate the discussion and will introduce them. Uh, I'm really looking forward to these discussions. Thank you. Over to you, Catherine. So welcome everybody, delighted to be here in this first of our series of uh, convenings, events, to discuss the politics of narrative um, with respect to Gaza. So I'm not going to spend time uh, describing some of what we've all been witnessing over the last few months, uh, but today we're here to unpack some of the patterns and divergences in the narrative landscape. And we're particularly interested in what's being conveyed in, in North American and Western European countries in this particular event today. So um, we'll be looking uh, particularly at the journalistic landscape, how information is relayed, um, and also social media. Uh, the backdrop to this, as some of you may well know, is that up to 100, 100 journalists have been killed in Gaza, levels unprecedented. And, and I won't go into detail about all the other, the levels of, of death that have also taken place there. Um, before I launch in and introduce you to our panelists, I just wanted to give some housekeeping uh, rules. So there are a number of people joining online. Uh, please feel free uh, to put your questions and comments in the Q&A uh available to you online and we will come to these questions and comments at the latter part of the of the of the event so um without further ado let me introduce our panelists then so we have online Athwa hirsch who many of you will already know journalist writer and broadcaster uh, Afua is a British writer, broadcaster. She's been a journalist for over 20 years. The Guardian, Sky News, she's been famous for. She's also the author of uh, British uh, on race, identity and belonging, 2017. 
and um, she's also worked in international development in up to 15 countries, maybe many of you didn't know that, and is also a qualified barrister. Uh, welcome, Afwa. Um, we also have to my left here in person, uh, Udi Raz. Um, Udi Raz is a doctoral fellow at the Berlin Graduate School um, on Muslim cultures and societies. Um, uh, she investigates the uh, contemporary self-understanding of Germany as nation-state. Uh, there's so much that so she grew up in Haifa, um, in Tel Aviv and, and Beirut, between those two. Um, and her work is shaped by local and global anti- and decolonial, uh, as well as queer liberation movements. She's lived in Berlin since 2010. Um, and uh, there are many other things, but I won't go into further detail so we can get on with it. Uh, lastly, hold on this important uh, um, point. Um, Udi Raz is on a, a board member of the German-based organization uh, Jewish Voice for Just Peace in the Middle East. So welcome, Udi. And we have to my next uh, left, we have Dr. Yasmin Daher. Uh, who is a feminist writer and activist and a political philosopher. She holds a doctorate degree from the Department of Philosophy uh, in the, from the University of Montreal, focusing on ethics and political philosophy. She's taught in a number of places, including in Beersite University and Simone de Beauvoir Institute. She's uh, currently, uh, this is important for our conversation here as well, she's currently the co-director and editorial director of Febreya, uh, network of independent Arab media organizations based in Berlin. Welcome to you. And finally, uh, we have Mohammed Hussein, who, Hassan. I thought it was Hassan, but someone's written it wrongly here. So you will excuse me. Sorry. Uh, um, he's an award-winning journalist and the published author from Egypt and New Zealand, currently based in London with a background in digital, radio and broadcast media. He focuses on the Middle East, Turkey, Asia Pacific, and he has an interest in politics, economy, and, um, and, and media and pop culture. He's a writer and host of The Big Picture, which is a podcast um, uh, produced with the Middle East Eye, and is author of How to Be a Bad Muslim um, and National Anthem. He's also produced dark comedy TV series called Miles from Nowhere. Welcome, welcome to all of you. So um, I think we just should launch in um, because we have a lot to get through and, um, you know, we haven't got very much time. So I'll just cut to the first question, really, that I'm going to put to all of you, um, because where we stand on this question of narratives is also very much based on our own positionality, okay? So I want to just ask you to kick us off by saying something very personal, uh, telling us how and why you all became interested in this question of narrative and to pinpoint, uh, you know, how you came to understand the power of narratives to shape outcomes, uh, questions of whether we live or die and whether anyone even cares. I want to turn to you first, Afwa. Um, what are your thoughts uh, on that? How did you get to understand the power of narrative? Thank you, Catherine, and thanks again for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, so much of my work centers around the power of narrative 
in social discourse and the media. As you mentioned, I practice law as a barrister. I've also written um, several books on race and identity from a British African perspective, but also in the context of globalization and uh, post-colonialism. And I am, as you said, a journalist, and I teach journalism as a professor of journalism at the University of Southern California, and I'm therefore teaching a new generation of journalists about the power of media narratives and about the responsibility that comes with having so much influence over public discourse. So it's absolutely at the heart of all of my thinking, really, my academic, professional and personal thinking. And to answer your question really personally, as a young black woman growing up in Britain, my first encounter with the power of narrative was in my own experience of my identity, that my understanding of my blackness, my Africanness, my otherness through the perspective of British political thinking was filtered through the lens of the British media, which painted Africa in a a, in a, a tone that was barely changed since colonial times. And I'm sure many people watching this are very familiar with that narrative, a dark continent, a place that had contributed nothing to humanity, um, that really was at best the source of resources and extracted wealth for others, and at worst, uh, somewhere with nothing to offer. And I think many people who grow up minoritized as Black in countries that formerly colonized African and other parts of the world having encountered that in their own psychology. And as we know, empires have never been able to be maintained by military force alone. They always required colonized subjects to internalize some degree of their own inferiority. And that a primary tool for that has been the media and, and persuading people that it is an objective fact that people, cultures, histories are inferior to those in Europe and the West. So long before I had a language for that or the platform to share it I felt it very deeply in my own sense of identity the shame of being African the shame of being black the ways in which I was othered by peers who didn't understand the baggage that they had ingested through their education and through their consumption of the media and I think that is relevant in the conversation we're having today because when I look at the discourse around what's happening in Israel and Palestine it's inseparable from British colonial history. The roots of this conflict, as we know, are part of that history. And the media is repeating many of the uh, problematic language that has been so impactful for other minoritized groups. And I'm sure we'll talk in more detail about that language. Um, and one of the few positive things I think to come out of this has been a more serious study than I've seen before in real time on really dissecting data at, on that language, how it's affecting people's thinking and their understanding of what's happening. And that's really necessary because for so long, power has been distributed unevenly and narratives have come out of it with real life or death consequences for people. And there's a long history of that, but I think it's become so extreme in this conflict that it's really focused attention on why that matters. Well, we're deep, already very deep in the subject. We've only been going for a few minutes. So thank you for that wonderful introduction. Uzi, what are your, give us your perspective on this. Um, how did you get into this? How did you come to understand the power of narrative to, to shape your own life? I will gladly do this by explaining a bit where I come from. I come from a city called Haifa. Haifa is a beautiful city located right between Tel Aviv and Beirut. 
Haifa is known as a city where Palestinians and Jews share the same geographical area. So for me, growing up in Haifa uh, and seeing Palestinians around me already uh, was made it for me very clear that Palestinians are human beings as much as other people who live in the same city. But as I grew up, I rarely had the opportunity to actually engage with Palestinians who live in the same city because I grew up in a Jewish social context. Going to school, to name one example, going to school uh, for the duration of 12 years, I had the opportunity to meet only one individual who is Palestinian, whom I could also call a classmate. The system that governs these two populations, Jews and Palestinians who live in the same geographical area already prescribes segregation. The state of Israel is designed by Jews for Jews. So for me, growing up in Haifa or generally in Israel, Palestine was never, or it was, it felt really like home. Wherever I went, I felt like as if my body extended itself to feel comfortable everywhere around me because the system is designed for me to protect me, to make me feel at home. But around the age of 13, 14, I realized that I am queer. And I looked for a place where I could meet other queer individuals in the city of Haifa. There was a safe space for queer teenagers back then in the city of Haifa, which I helped to establish. And not surprisingly, within this safe space, queer safe space, we shared the same room, Jews and Palestinians, and everybody who lived in this city and who felt affected by a heteronormative, oppressing uh, uh, way of, of uh, governance. So, it was really in this safe space for queer individuals that for the first time in my life, I could actually hear what are the living realities Palestinians are living through in the same geographical area. This shaped very much my understanding that Palestinians who live in the same place are living under totally different living realities than what I knew about. And from this moment on, I was very much intrigued by the understanding, by the, by the attempt to understand better what shapes this different. Why, not only why heterosexuality governs us and marks us as uh, marginalized or queer, right? But also why Palestinians who live in the same area perceive themselves as less represented by the governing system. So this is how narratives shaped the under my understanding of what is the reality I'm living in. Thank you. Thank you very much for that really very uh, um, interesting uh, perspective where you're, you move from uh, a space in which you, are, you feel outside as extension of your own home to one where you, through your own marginalization, are able to understand the marginalization of Palestinians around you. Very interesting. And over to you, Yasmin, uh, tell us about your own personal take on, yeah. on this question. Okay. Thank you, Catherine, and um, thank you for uh, organizing this and, and hosting us. 
So um, I am Palestinian. Um, I was uh, born and raised uh, in the city in the north uh, called Nazareth. Um, and um, I think many of the answers I will be given uh, tonight and my engagement in this uh, panel is really uh, very much uh, affected by uh, what has been happening, uh, especially in the last uh, three months. Uh, 95 uh, days of uh, um, of uh, genocidal onslaught on uh, on Gaza, and um, uh, for me, like when I think about uh, my own uh, life trajectory and the trajectory and lives of the uh, my the Palestinians, my uh, my people, um, I. Um, something comes uh, comes up with the with the word narrative uh, very uh, which is very strong uh, which is the language the terminology that uh, uh, this uh, this cause this uh, conflict has been uh, described uh, uh, with and um, the kind of uh, imagination that it uh, it brings it puts on the table like what kind of uh, solution do we uh, imagine for uh, for it and hence also the um, the power and the power dynamics and the relations um, that actually uh, impose and allow certain narrative uh, against uh, against others. Um, and one of the uh, one of the like two concepts that uh, come a lot when uh, I'm thinking about uh, the narrative I grew up uh, with and I uh, I feel deeply is the uh, the concept of death and of uh, of life. Um, and um, here I I would like to give uh, one um, one example from um, uh, maybe a story you've you've heard about the poet Rifat al Arir who was uh, murdered in, on December seventh and he has a, um, a very beautiful uh, he's a poet and a writer and a professor of uh, English literature. Um, he wrote this uh, this uh, powerful uh, poem that called uh, if i must die uh, you must live to tell my story to sell my things it's a long one i'm not gonna uh, read it uh, all here um, but i like really stopped to think about this uh, if i must die and um, why the dying is preceded by by must and how come there is like a mandatory uh, case of uh, of death, and um, I think maybe one thread really colors the lives of many Palestinians is the feeling that our lives is dispos are disposable, and um, there is a there is a sense that the world is is used to it that we actually should die or there is a like must die in order for a narrative to change in order that we tell a different story in order that the world hear us um and um and i think if there is something that has been happening in the last uh, uh three months uh with the shift of the narrative of with the uh coming as uh what kind of also um resistance there is to the uh, the current narrative is that the Palestinians are trying to um, actually force the world to see the context, uh, the historical and the political context, and going back to the root of it, to the Nakba, to the 1948, to the disposition, displacement uh, of the Palestinians. So whatever we tell about the current narrative makes sense. 
Uh, so we understand how this, uh, why we feel so, how this feeling actually has become so normalized in, uh, in, in the discourse, especially the very powerful discourse in the uh, Western uh, media, um, like Europe and uh, the United States uh, especially. Um, that our life is uh, is disposable because for 75 years um, it was accepted that the Palestinians are dispossessed. They are expelled from their uh, from their um, uh, 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 homeland. Uh, 750,000 Palestinians became uh, uh, refugees. 530 villages were destroyed. Um, so this sense of I think uh, maybe um, yeah. So this this personal sense with what my life means, uh, not only to me, but to the world is uh, something that actually brings me to this um, um, whole issue of narrating and narrative and what kind of like writing and creative word of engaging with uh, uh, with life that it, it, it becomes different. It's uh, we tell uh, we tell a different story. Thank you. I mean, this is really the heart of the matter because it's the words, even the small words, like must, die, or those two words together, tell a whole story about who has the rights to live or die and what becomes legitimized through the words we use. Thank you very much for that introduction, that personal introduction. I want to turn to you now, um, Hamid. To, 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 to tell us how you got into this. You have this dual New Zealand and um, uh, the heritage. And so, yeah, how did, how's that shaped the way you're, you've come into this? Um, thank you, Catherine. And uh, I, I just have to say that this is a really um, uh, beautiful way to begin our conversation because I think it allows everybody in the room to kind of understand where each of us has come from to this point here to begin talking about something that I think uh, has been very consuming. You know, the questions that we've had to ask ourselves, um, myself as a journalist, but also just as people over the last three months have been very profound and um, very um, um, constitutional of the way that we see the world and the way we, the way under, we understand how the world works. So uh, as you mentioned, I, I grew up in New Zealand. I was born in Egypt and I came of age uh, during the beginnings of the war on terror. And as a Muslim, as a young Muslim, it was fundamental in shaping how I saw myself as part of a Western society and how I saw myself as part of my own community. And very quickly, as a young Muslim, the thing that you uh, come to learn is that there is this very uh, mistrustful, sometimes antagonistic relationship that you have with the media with journalism, with the way that your community is being portrayed and reported on. And there is a uh, wide, uh, widely held belief in a lot of Muslim communities that a lot of big media institutions have specific agendas that they use and that govern the way that they uh, document the lives of not only Muslims in Western countries, but the Muslim world, the uh, global South, um, and that those narratives persist because of these agendas that go all the way to the top. This is something that a lot of Muslims believe in their bones based off of their own lived experiences. And so that was something that pushed me to enter into journalism because I thought that, well, 
No one is telling our stories, and I'm not seeing anyone that looks like me saying these stories on television and newspapers, and so I want to be one of those people. And when I entered into my first uh, job as a journalist and, and into an overwhelmingly white newsroom, I learned something very quickly. And what I learned was, is that for the large part, I'm not saying that there aren't you know, agendas that do exist in shape or form in different places, but that the reason why this perception of the Muslim community is so overwhelmingly negative in the way that uh, the media is, operates isn't because there is, an, there is an agenda, there is an editorial line that is pushed from the top down, but more so it's that the misconceptions that people have in the communities around me are the same misconceptions that the journalists inside these newsrooms hold. And these are misconceptions that they themselves aren't aware of. All of us have our own personal biases and we bring these biases to work wherever we are. And there was two incidences that really solidified that for me. The first one was in 2014 when there was a uh, terrorist incident in Sydney, in Australia, um, and where a man who uh, we'd later find out had very severe mental health issues um, held up a cafe in downtown Sydney. Some of you may, may remember it. It was the Lent Cafe, uh, and it was called the Sydney Siege at the time. There was a, a lot of hostages that were taken um, uh, in held inside that uh, cafe for uh, 34 hours until the uh, police were able to uh, control the situation. As a result, three people died, one of whom was the, the hostage taker. And I was working as a you know, junior journalist at the time in uh, our national newsroom in New Zealand. And I come in from my shift at about 3 p.m. And I entered into this room and like, you know, as a journalist, when there's a breaking news situation, you're buzzing, you're, you're, you, there's a level of like adrenaline rush that you get from being in those situations. And I was, couldn't wait until I entered this newsroom so I could be a part of it. And as soon as I entered that room that I had worked in for about two years, I realized that the sh air shifted completely the moment that I entered that space. And all of my colleagues who I had known and had spent a lot of time working alongside were afraid of looking at me or talking to me. And it was a very surreal experience because I realized in that moment that there was something maybe uh, that they weren't even aware of themselves that connected in their minds who I was as a Muslim colleague of theirs and the Muslim man that was on their live broadcast that they were watching. And so that really stuck with me and that really shifted the way that I saw myself in that space. And two years later, I had the opportunity to speak with a colleague of mine who was a very well respected and esteemed indigenous journalist in, uh, in New Zealand. And I was talking to her about how I felt about, you know, how, uh, how hard it was to try and like shed my identity as a Muslim and just kind of like be invisible in these newsrooms and become a political journalist and go into press galleries and, 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 and pursue a kind of like uh, political journalist career. She took me aside and she said, look, here's the reality. A lot of these people in these newsrooms are not going to see you as anything other than a Muslim journalist. And so there is no use running away from it. You might as well embrace it and make it work for yourself. And that was fundamental for me, because since then, I have tried to remind myself that this is if this is who I am in these spaces, then what can I use that for and what kind of responsibility do I have to be able to tell that story, to tell that narrative and to try and pull it in a direction that I think is a lot more just and a lot more representative. Um, and I, I bring this up because I think that with regards to the last three months, 
so much of what we've been uh, struggling with and been pained by is the media narrative, is the way that uh, there is a clear um, discrepancy between the way Israeli and Palestinian voices are presented. Uh, and a big part of that is, again, not necessarily about agendas, but about the biases and the perceptions and the perspectives of the journalists and of the newsrooms that are presenting these stories. And I think that's something that we can talk about as well, but, I, but it's definitely something that I remind myself a lot in my work. Thank you so much. I mean, I think there are threads running through each of your personal stories, uh, which uh, make them very, very relevant to this conversation. And let's maybe dig a little bit deeper into some of the things that you just said, Ben, you know. So you, you spoke of uh, this kind of alienation that you experienced after that. Um, and, and I'd like to bring it to the, bring it to, you know, what does that mean? What does that, those feelings look like? in the context of your experience of reporting of, 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 of the current conflict. Um, there are a number of tropes, a number of words that you all met, you mentioned, you mentioned different words, putting together the, the must and die, um, uh, the way Muslims are talked about. Um, can we perhaps bring to, it'd be good to hear from you, maybe I'll start with you, Udi, um, some of those contested words that are in circulation right now in terms of you know in terms of the way this current crisis is being relayed to us thank you Catherine. I, maybe i would I'd like to uh, address this question from the uh, uh dealing with the question of what is anti-semitism because we hear a lot at the moment this is the argument that uh, that zionists basically use in order to justify the atrocities that we're all witnessing now in Gaza, but also in the West Bank and inside uh, the boundaries, uh, the, the uh, national boundaries of the state of Israel. Let, let us talk a bit about how the definition of anti-Semitism has been institution, institutionalized in the last, almost last decade. In 2015, a new definition of anti-Semitism has been introduced by the so-called IHRA. IHRA stands for International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. Okay. Within the plenary of, of uh, the IHRA, a new uh, definition has been introduced. I will uh, read it for you very quickly. It's a very short one and very confusing one. <laughs> Let me begin. Anti-Semitism is a certain perception of Jews which may be expressed as hatred towards Jews, rhetorical and physical manifestations of anti-Semitism are directed toward Jewish or non-Jewish individuals and or their property toward Jewish community, institutions, and religious facilities. Confused? Those who framed this definition got confused themselves. This is the reason why they found it necessary to attach 11 examples to what anti-Semitism anti could mean. The thing is, before I read for you one example, the examples that were attached to this definition were not approved by the plenary session of the IHRA. They were added by the representative of the State of Israel, indeed by a lobby organization, US-based lobby organization, Zionist lobby organization. I will read for you one example of what anti-Semitism could mean, or should mean, indeed. Denying the Jewish people their right to self-determination, for example, by claiming that the existence of the state of Israel is a racist endeavor. Now, we have 
a problem here because Israel is a racist endeavor. Israel understands itself as such by the very, for example, by the very way that Israel claims who is Jewish and who is not Jewish. And earlier you said in your introduction that, you know, your experience was of a state designed by Jews for Jews. This is what you this started off with. This is it. Yes. So we see it, uh, there are many different manifestations of this. Migration law is only one example. Jews are defined as Jews very similar to the way that Nazis defined who Jews are. If you are quarter Jewish, racially speaking, quarter Jewish, then you are allowed to migrate to Israel and become a, a, a citizen of the state of Israel. Meanwhile, Palestinians were uh, um, exiled in 1948, are not allowed to come back to see their homes, neither to become citizens of the state of Israel. They are subjected to, uh, Palestinians who live in Israel are subjected to systemic discrimination and oppression. Now, the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism claims that we are not allowed to say that Israel is an anti-Semitic, uh, sorry, that Israel is a racist endeavor, which means that Jews, according to this definition, must uh, self-determine themselves as racists, right? And this is, to my understanding, pretty much an anti-Semitic statement, as if Jews cannot exist beyond racism. And so this, I mean, the reason why this, you're talking about anti-Semitism is because it's also being, become very charged. Um, and if you say anything in some context, if you say, for example, you can describe the situation in Germany, if you uh, want to protest against what's happening in Gaza, or if you raise the Palestinian flag, those acts are seen as acts of anti-Semitism. Uh, there are people, for example, you spoke of segregation in the context of um, your, your initial introduction. And uh, there are people who have talked about segregation, for example, the, the boycott uh, movement and so on, um, that have been banned entry in certain countries. Do you want to comment on that, particularly with respect to the German yeah, experience? Absolutely. I think it would be interesting. Shortly after the 7th of October, or since the 7th of October, we have seen systematic oppression of Palestinians as such in Germany. Palestinians were deprived of basic democratic rights. Palestinians, were, or not only Palestinians, anyone who lived in Germany were not allowed to show their kafir in public. Right. They were not allowed to show the Palestinian flag in public. Palestinianness has been criminalized in order to protect Jews. To be clear, there is nothing here that actually protects Jews in this situation. What Germany is doing is to claim the, its uh, attempt to protect Jews, while in fact what it does, it justifies a racist state, an apartheid state, it justifies and promotes a genocide, an ongoing genocide. I think it's interesting that South Africa today or yesterday today. You should today use the term genocidal acts and going to the UN uh, International uh, Court of hu uh, Human Rights of Justice. Um, so it's very, very, it's a very live issue. I, perhaps I just want to invite others to, to comment, a Afwa, on these this question of what are some of the narrative tropes that are that are being contested right now. You famously. Um, 
uh, at the end of last year, during, when the ceasefire was announced, the humanitarian ceasefire for that week or a few days, um, you'd said, now the real battle for narratives begins. Can you say a little bit about what you were thinking when you made that comment? Yeah, and also following on from Udi's really moving and also alarming words, um, I just want to point out, you know, when we're talking about the ways in which allegations of anti-Semitism have been weaponized to silence legitimate criticism of Israeli policy. I think this entire conversation is an example of that. When I, you know, my area of analysis in academia is largely focused on media narratives. When, and I apply that to gender, I apply it to race, I apply it to class, so I apply it to uh, colonialism. When you apply that to what's happening with between Israel and Palestine, you are accused of anti-Semitism. You are accused of feeding this trope that there is this kind of Jewish conspiracy to control the media. Now I say that not ever being dismissive of the reality that there are anti-Semitic tropes in circulation. And actually one of the great ironies of this these last few months is that many of the most well-known anti-Semites in the world are among those who've been paraded out to say they stand with Israel. Um, and and it's one of many reasons why it does it feels disingenuous the ways in which allegations of anti-Semitism are, are currently being used. So I would say that there are anti-Semitic tropes that exist in the world and in many parts of the media, but the idea that Israel should be immune from any criticism, that the narratives being applied to what's happening in Gaza right now should be suspended when we apply those same analyses to what the experiences of indigenous and black people are. To me, that feels like an attempt to use anti-Semitism falsely to silence people and to instill fear in journalists, which is real. Um, and so just in terms of the actual ways in which uh, media narratives are working right now, I just want to break it down into two parts, really. One is the use of coded language, the use of differential language between Palestinians and Jews. And I've got some data if you're interested on how that's working. And the other part is the treatment of journalists. And this follows on from what Mohammed was saying. If you look at uh, experiences of journalists in some of the most major newsrooms in the world right now, there are widespread concerns that journalists of Arab or Muslim heritage are under specific heightened scrutiny for their remarks in a way that other journalists and Jewish or Israeli journalists are not. There are um, many major news organizations who banned their journalists from taking a position on such basic humanitarian issues as whether a ceasefire to deliver aid is something that is necessary. And I really think that level of attempting to silence journalists, pre preventing them take a stance on what previously were considered shared values, that we all believe in human rights, we all believe in uh, humanitarian access to basic survival for all people. These are things that previously were not contested and yet now it's seen as taking a political position to support the idea that the people in Gaza, that Palestinians deserve the same basic humanitarian protections as everyone else. So I think these these forces are at work. I, I just, because I keep mentioning the language, I mean, some of the language that I've seen um, has involved some coded language. So for example, um, I've seen reports such as uh, Israelis are like us, so this is worse, you know, and this reminds me of some of the reporting we saw in Ukraine, this idea that people who are maybe seem proximate to whiteness or seem to have lifestyles that resemble Western Europe or America, when they experience humanitarian suffering, that is a different category. It, it requires a different category of empathy. And that's a very familiar 
example of how white supremacy works, this dehumanizing of people who are racialized as other. And I think the ways in which some of those narratives have worked here is quite an extreme example of that. Um, there has been data about the mentions of Palestinian and Israeli deaths. And some of the research I've seen really shows that while um, the, the mentions of Palestinians and Israeli deaths in major news outlets like the BBC has remained fairly equal since October, in spite of the fact that the number of Palestinian deaths far outstrips the number of Israeli deaths. We're now more than 23,000 Palestinians have been killed. And yet the there seems to be uh, the, the appearance of parity in the mentions of those deaths is a form of huge disparity given the numbers of people who are suffering and who have been killed in the violence that's taking place. Um, and I think as well, some of the specific language. I mean, we. I think there's been quite a lot of coverage of this, but it is really important to say that um, words like parent, grandfather, grandchild have been applied disproportionately to Israelis, whereas Palestinians have just been called people, have been numbers of people. They haven't been humanized with the same language that denotes membership of a family, that denotes a, an emotional, psychological hinterland, that denotes a right to a childhood. There are even examples of um, Israelis being called children, whereas Palestinians being called people 18 and under. You know, and these might seem like subtle, superficial things, but when you're constantly hearing this language, it has the aggregative effect of making one group seem like people like you who deserve the same rights and protections as you, and another group seem dehumanized, literally dehumanized. Um, and, and that's still happening as we speak. And despite the scrutiny and some of the excellent research and data collection that's been done, many major news outlets are still repeating this language in a way that has a real impact, I think, on public opinion and allows policy, which is clearly disastrous, catastrophic and deeply unjust, not to mention also illegal. And I think it is really useful to talk. I mean, I'm a bias because I'm a, I'm a former international lawyer, but this isn't opinion and conjecture. The reason international humanitarian law exists is to protect civilians in uh, conflicts like this. That is the entire point of it. The fact that it was born out of the traumatic experience of so many Jews in the Second World War is a deep irony, that that was what inspired the world to create laws that protect civilians. And the fact that it is now, I feel, being dragged into the sphere of opinion of taking a political position is incredibly disingenuous. This is not an opinion. This is a matter of legal fact. Thank you very much, Afra. And it, it reminds me what some of the debates we had when we were putting together this panel. There was a conversation about should we talk about narratives? Because this is not this is not relativism. You know, it's not one version of truth versus another. And we were we were, we were quite clear that actually we were very interested in understanding and unpacking the political work that narratives allow. I want you to I want to bring you in um, again, uh, Mohammed, just to reflect on some of the things, reflect back on some of what Afu has put down on the table uh, re related to your experience, you know, this question of a kind of a hierarchy of empathy that's, you know, dehumanizes one group and um, and uh, insinuates sameness of another. You know, what are your thoughts on this? I, I remember just after October the 7th, there was a, a lot of focusing on some of the young people that were in nightclubs and had been attacked, you know, that those codes 
of sameness um, uh, proliferated at the time. I don't know if you have other examples that have, have spoken to you. I remember uh, in, I believe it was 2015, when there was a, there was a terror incident in the south of France um, on, the, on the coast of um, uh, Nice. Uh, and I remember being in a newsroom covering that event. And one of the conversations that was happening uh, while we were getting a lot of very raw and edited uh, footage from the wires about a lot of it was very gruesome. But there was this very intense conversation about what we can show and what we could, can't show on television and what our audience um, had the uh, sensitivity for and what they didn't. And there was a very clear line of you don't show dead bodies. You don't show people who've lost their limbs. You can show people who are uh, maybe bleeding or, or being treated, but that there was an understanding that you can tell somebody's story without showing the most gruesome aspects of their life. And I think it's really applies to the way that the media has covered all of the events that have transpired since October 7th. And we can think about what in our minds, the events of the day of October 7th, in the kibbutzes, in the uh, Israeli villages, uh, even, you know, as you mentioned, in the, um, the, the music festival, uh, what that looks like in our heads. And I think a lot of us have a kind of a clear narrative, but how much of that is based off of actual footage of what happened and footage of the deaths of people, the, the, the mutilation of bodies, and the clearest example of that is the story that, you know, was later like we understood that it wasn't true, but the, the 40 beheaded babies. This story was the front page of almost every newspaper in this country. And it wasn't a story that was based off of uh, footage or, or images, but off the narratives and the testimonies of some of the people that were there at the time. And, and you know, there's a lot of terrible journalism that pushed the story to the surface when in fact it wasn't based off fact but there was a willingness for all of us to be able to accept that story at face value based off of the idea that you these we have an understanding of the humanity of people in that position the humanity of civilians in a situation like that and what they went through and that we don't need to see them at their absolute worst to be able to believe them now if we compare that to everything that we have seen coming out of Gaza. And that has been the complete opposite. You see footage and images of Palestinian parents holding the bodies of their infant children up in front of cameras because they know this is the only way that they are going to prove that their children died because they don't believe that the world will believe them. And this is not something that is new to the way that we see Palestinian deaths and Palestinian bodies. This is the way the Palestinian uh, plight has always been presented to us. And there is a something that is deeply wrong about our ability to be able to see two groups of people, one at their absolute best and one at their absolute worst. And what that does to our ability as human beings to communicate and connect with them as human beings. And it's very counterintuitive, but really, when you are used to seeing people in that state constantly in a sense of grief and war and loss and devastation and death, it dehumanizes them in our eyes. We don't see them as full, fully human, full human beings. And that impacts our ability to be able to hear their stories. And so this is something that 
was very present. Think about Ukraine. Think about how many bodies of Ukrainian children you have seen and whether that had an, any impact on your ability to sympathize with the plight of Ukrainian people. And so there is a really understanding, if we talk about narratives, mm -hmm. when we talk about the sanctity of life, yeah. and we talk about the protection of people at their most vulnerable, and what we have, we, what we need to be able to see to connect with people, and there's a very clear difference between what Palestinians have to prove in order to re regain the sympathy of the international community, and what Israelis have to prove to gain that same level of sympathy. And I think that speaks volumes to our ability to be able to see two different people in very different lights. One inherently retains their sense of humanity, and one is deprived of their sense of humanity despite everything that they try and put themselves forward. I don't think a single person in Gaza wants the world to be able to see them or their families or their loved ones in that state. But why is it that we as an international community need to see this, this, this footage and need to see enough of it before the narrative begins to shift? And we saw that. We, Do you think the narrative is beginning to shift, I do you think, think? I think if we compare with what the first week of, of October 7th, I mean, mm -hmm. what is happening today in Gaza is what was happening on October 7th in Gaza. Mm -hmm. Nothing has changed. But the way that we understand the conflict, the way that the media speaks about the conflict has shifted. It still hasn't gotten to the point, you know, Afwa mentioned the fact that now that there's a, a, a parity between the way that Palestinian and Israeli deaths are being presented, and this is kind of the, the level that we've reached, but this certainly wasn't where we started from. Um, and it was a week, maybe two weeks, before there was enough footage that came out of Gaza. There were enough Palestinian bodies on footage recorded on social media before journalists started asking those questions and started pushing back on the narrative that was coming out of the Israeli government and started pushing back on the Israeli representatives. Meanwhile, over that same period of time, every single Palestinian voice that was on Western media was being asked one question. Hamas. I mean, this is just fascinating because, you know, you're, you're talking about not just words, but how visual imagery shapes the story and this question of empathy that we've spoken about from the beginning to now and how narratives determine your ability to empathize or not, even if they're visual narratives. I want to come to you, Yasmin, and ask you a little bit about this question of outrage. So I quoted or someone quoted a figure of up to 100, yet yeah, it was me, uh, up to 100 journalists have been killed uh, since this uh, escalation. And that's dramatic number. Yeah. Um, but what are your thoughts on whether that is actually being picked up beyond the deaths of Palestinians and the, the, the outrage that is perhaps starting to emerge around that, but against those who are going to get the story and the deaths that they're, and, and, and the violence that is being meted out on them. Some say, you know, there are, there's, it's contested, but you know, there are accusations of deliberate targeting of those invests and so on. Um, what 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 is your sense of why there doesn't seem to be outrage at 100 journalists killed in a in the space of a three month you know not even up to three months yeah um as you say the number of journalists killed is uh unprecedented uh from what we know uh historically um so now we are talking about uh more than 100 uh but i last figures i looked at was 112 
And uh, we are not only talking about the killing of these journalists, but also the targeting of their families. Uh, so as we've seen the uh, the story of the well-known uh, Al Jazeera journalist mm -hmm. Wael Al-Dahdouh, who, who had lost already uh, three of his uh, kids, a grandson and his, uh, his wife, uh, in two uh, uh, different occasions. And he himself uh, was hit, which makes this uh, like the the uh, accusation of deliberate uh, quite obvious and uh, hard to uh, refute and um, we're not only talking about the the act not only the the uh, unprecedented death but also the fact that we are talking about a, a group of people professionals who uh, are in really in need in in times like these times to uh, be able to be uh, to feel safe, to feel protected, to do their own job, but uh, we should ask under which conditions right now they are uh, actually performing this job. So they are intense. They uh, their homes and residences and offices have been already destroyed since the beginning of the um, assault on, on Gaza. Uh, they are starved like uh, the community uh, they belong to, like many of, uh, of the people in, in Gaza. And we know now that, especially in certain areas, uh, uh, food is really scarce. Uh, the same with, uh, with water. They need to, to ration the amount of uh, water they, uh, they drink uh, on a daily basis. And with the effect of knowing that their death might be, uh, might be imminent. So this is really un unprecedented, and yeah, it's not uh, uh, causing enough uh, outrage, uh, enough sympathy, maybe in newsrooms around the world, and especially again in Europe and the uh, uh, United States. Uh, we are not seeing enough uh, newsrooms protesting the fact that their colleagues yes. uh, are actually uh, working under uh, uh, these conditions. And, as we speak today, just today, the um, Israeli Supreme Court ruled against uh, a request uh, from international uh, journalists to allow them to enter uh, uh, Gaza uh, through uh, either Ares or um, the um, Rafah, uh, Rafah crossing. Mm -hmm. And to uh, make this very clear, for 95 days uh, of the war, uh, international correspondents have not been allowed into uh, into the strip, which um, which means that uh, Israel really adamant in not letting the people see really what is happening in uh, uh, in Gaza, and the only ones that are allowed to uh, almost after a month maybe were allowed uh, into Gaza were embedded within the uh, with with the Israeli uh, troops. Definitely, there is a, like a lot more that can be done uh, by especially powerful newsrooms, uh, uh, both in uh, broadcasted media and written media, um, by demanding the protection uh, of the uh, journalists and actually holding Israel accountable for the lives of the journalists, for protecting the journalists, and for allowing uh, also at this moment, international uh, journalist into uh, the Gaza. Thank you. Thank you. And I'd like to turn to you again, Afwa, and just ask you, and anyone actually, because this will be the last question before we hand over to our, 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 our audience. Um, 
you know, to to to, to give us some thoughts about what then, then this means, you know. Um, Jeremy Bowen recently said something about social media as being a necessity now, um, given what uh, Yasmin has just described in terms of, you know, journalists not being able to get in or not being allowed to report. What What is your take on what this moment means for the status of official media um, um, as trusted? Yeah, the point Yasmin makes is so important because the ultimate way in which Israel has been controlling the narrative is to stop professional journalists actually reporting for themselves, uh, documenting what's happening. That doesn't only have consequences for media narratives, it also has consequences for future litigation. This is how evidence is gathered while uh, abuses are taking place and atrocities are taking place. The professional evidence gathering of first-hand reporting has not been allowed to take place. And that is a problem that I think the full effects of which we aren't even beginning to see yet, because while South Africa is uh, presented the uh, case to the International Court of Justice. Uh, we haven't actually got into what I believe will be lengthy attempts to hold Israel to account for what's been happening. Um, I think that it's true that social media has played a critical role in the vacuum of mainstream news being, news being able to report directly in first-hand accounts of what's happening. We have relied heavily on the incredibly brave work of so many people personally affected by the assault on Gaza, documenting, sharing, posting. Um, I think that, that there are two things I'll say about that. The first is that that, that uh, documentation and reporting has been invaluable, but I think it's easy to be over-optimistic about that. Social media platforms like Instagram have still been controlling uh, the flow of information. They have been censoring accounts that post images and updates from Gaza. They have blocked people who repeatedly call for a ceasefire, who call it a genocide. So I think it's sometimes we get carried away in, in, in regarding social media as the answer. There is still censorship and control that is exerted over the ways in which information is posted and shared on those platforms. Having said that, I think that it, this experience has accelerated the extent to which people rely on and have trusted sources on social media. And there are many people whose work is of the quality or exceeds in some cases the quality of, of well-known professional journalists who have built up huge followings on social media. And I, I don't think that genie will be put back in the bottle. I think that the tendency of people to turn to those trusted sources and follow those channels will only increase. The second thing I want to say is a generational thing about the ways in which public opinion has been shaped. Um, I was speaking yesterday to a, uh, an Israeli producer I've worked for before with whom I disagreed profoundly about what's happening um, in Gaza. But she was telling me her frustration that her children agree with me, you know, and that the, their generation, you know, their their late teens and early 20s, that they consume most of their news through social media, that in the, among their social group, there is little sympathy for the policies that Israel has been pursuing in Gaza. And I think that is reflective of a wider phenomenon. And those things are connected, that the generation who do not rely on mainstream news to receive their information, who are more assertive in seeking out their own sources on social media, also tends to think more critically um, and apply their own values. And I think they are more likely to humanise Palestinians and to regard what's happening in Gaza as unacceptable. So I think that was happening anyway, but this has certainly accelerated it. And uh, 
you know, that's partly, I think, the, re the responsibility of, ma of the mainstream news platforms to interrogate the way they have covered this. Uh, the really important point Mohammed was making about the demographic of journalists in those news organisations, which is so far from representative and has failed for so many generations to offer a diversity of perspectives and lived experiences. But part of this is structural and long term and uh, inevitable. And I, I, you know, this drift away from those platforms towards social platforms. And I do think that this will rapidly accelerate that drift. Thank you. Um, I think what we'll do now is open up the floor for questions and comments. And as I said at the beginning, you know, we're going to, yes, I'm, get the hand up quickly. Uh, what I said at the beginning is that we will um, let you have the, you know, the floor for some time and then we'll hand back at the end, once we've taken all the questions and comments to our panellists who will respond to those questions and comments they feel they want to and then kind of sum up. So I really want to give people the opportunity to, to say their piece, but at the same time, if you could keep it sharp and relatively you know, short. Um, can I also say that online, um, if you want to ask questions, um, uh, please post them in the Q&A section. Okay, gentlemen at the front. Hi, my name's Matthew. Uh, Matthew Robinson of uh, Migration Films. Hello. Hi. So um, I've got a cold. I'm a bit deaf. Um, so um, thank you for hosting this amazing panel. Thank you uh, all for coming along. Um, now, I, I believe that Israel has lost the battle of hearts and minds. The, the veil of respectability has fallen. The world can see what they're doing now. Um, and even though a lot of the mainstream news still ha the language used is uh, unbalanced, uh, and and dangerous. Um, do you think that with the and this is for the whole panel? Do you think that with what is going on in the ICJ right now? Do you think that could have ramifications for broadcasters in terms of pushing narratives which are fake? Thank you very much. Who wants to follow up with a question? Uh, this gentleman on the left at the back, and then yourself. Thank you. Um, good evening. My name is Mark Dubois. I'm an independent humanitarian consultant. Um, thank you very much. Uh, th this is a, a fascinating discussion, and, and I really do appreciate your moderation and, and, our, and our panelists and how you've brought these issues out. I wanted to get back to <clears throat> something <clears throat> something Afwa started with, and that is the, the idea of how this narrative plays on you know centuries-old narratives of the British Empire. And the reason I want to get into that is, you know, I work in humanitarian business. My my rent is paid by that narrative. Uh, ODI's rent is paid by that narrative, the narrative of places in the world where people are incompetent and corrupt and, and can't do anything and can't solve their own problems and all of that. And, you know, that's that this whole narrative of saviorism and things like that. And there's there's some pulling back on it. But, you know, for, for decades, we have a narrative that renders people in these places invisible. And so part of my question is, you know, is that the kind of narrative that, you know, are, the, are these narratives of war capitalizing on, on our narrative? Because it's a fairly common narrative. It comes through your, your door slot with, you know, as, you know, the request for funding and things on, on a regular basis. It's not through the mainstream news. It's a, it's, it's a similar narrative. And the second part of that is the narrative that we also hear uh, that places humanitarian aid as, as, a, as a solution to the problems, which I'm certainly not against humanitarian aid, but it, it's just the way in which it's positioned 
you know, take, it almost reduces what you might call, as what about the political solutions? What about actual engagement? What about stopping violence? Because humanitarian aid can deal with some of the symptoms, but it can't deal with what's underneath. So it's those two main false narratives of the sector that I'm a little bit interested in, how you see that in terms of the way in which the narratives you're talking about capitalize or not upon those things. Question. Thank you very much. Can we turn to you, uh, sir? Thank you. Um, my, so my name is Abdul Sami. I'm part of the Muslim Charities Forum. I've got two quick questions. I'll be very brief about them. Sorry. Uh, not sorry. Um, <laughs> um, the first part of the question was regarding social media. You, you mentioned about the role of social media as well with regards to being the eyes of journalists, um, particularly for those who aren't able to actually be on the ground. Unfortunately, journalists are also, sorry, uh, social media platforms are also being silenced. Uh, you're seeing, for example, shadow banning that's happening from social media companies. At the same time, you're also seeing uh, immense amount of money being funneled in targeted ads by the Israeli state as well, to a point where if you just Google search ICJ just right now, the first thing that will come up is, is a sponsored link by the Israeli government on their response, rather than the initial organic links regarding what the ICJ is, the website, about us, etc., etc. So. In this kind of a situation, in this new digital age of information, how are we able to still overcome such challenges to be able to push our narratives? The second part of the question was in regards to charities and uh, humanitarian organizations that are also on the ground that struggle to actually get across their first-hand account narratives as well. Because I think a lot of the times, a lot of there's a lot of disinformation that exists around uh, humanitarian organizations and even the way, for example, um, the Israeli government's actually labeling uh, UN uh, UNRWA staff as well as potentially being uh, working with, with Hamas, for example, as a way to demonize humanitarian workers. So reality is how are humanitarian workers able to actually get their narratives, which I think are even more insightful with, with regards to talking about how the, the delivery of aid is actually being restricted and how people are actually on the ground how, for example, diseases are actually being spread because of the lack of, uh, you know, the, the, the disorganization or the lack of clean uh, and, and uh, facilities on, on, on the ground, etc. So how can this narrative also kind of really be, be, be pushed and, and, and be brought to the mainstream? Thank you very much. And while there, before the other hands, um, let me just uh, turn to the questions that are coming in on the Q&A. So um, how can we compare the narrative landscape of the Gaza conflict with other conflicts that have similar dynamics of power, violence and resistance? That's one. And then what are some of the challenges and opportunities for journalists, activists and academics who want to present alternative or nuanced narratives of the Gaza conflict? And then finally, um, how does the media coverage of the Gaza conflict vary across different regions and cultures such as Africa, uh, Latin America or Asia? What are some of the commonalities and differences in the way, oops, in the way the media outlets are addressing, uh, are, are, are conveying um, the story? Um, yeah, let me just uh, stop there and remind you that we do, this is the first in a series of conversations, and so we will devote more time to looking at the media um, in, in, um, in other contexts and how, and how um, this story is being relayed. Um, a few more. And, and please feel free, those of you who are a little bit shy and don't have questions, to comment on what you're hearing um, elsewhere in the room. I really want to give this the opportunity for having something a bit more dynamic. On, on the left uh, there, please. 
Hello, um, my name is Julia Vossell. I work for ActionAid UK. <clears throat> my question um, is primarily off themes that have come up uh, with what Afwa said and Mohammed about um, journalists and journalists framing of uh, the crisis. When, um, for example, Israelis have been murdered, but Gazans just have just died and, you know, uh, Israelis, it's grandparents and, you know, what we've been talking about, about different choices of words, which create, intentionally create dehumanizing narratives. You know, I've never been in journalism. And I do wonder, is that fully intentional or is that just subconscious bias that leads to those choices in words? Thank you. Um, the next hand, pass the mic. Thank you. Uh, hello, thank you so much for this event. Um, I remember at your last event, you talked about how lots of global health organisations like MSF are now doing a lot of reporting on the ground. And I think MSF particularly has been quite vocal about what's been happening in Gaza. Um, and therefore, I think because it's a large global health issue, there seems to be a huge onus now on health workers in Gaza who have visited Gaza, have come back to report on what's been happening. The dichotomy, sorry, I work in the NHS, and the dichotomy that a lot of healthcare workers have in the UK is that you have people reporting these um, healthcare workers internally to regulatory health bodies such as General Medical Council on the basis of what you were mentioning about anti-Semitism. So I wanted to ask two questions. Firstly, how do we combat or how do we call on our organisations, our employers to not adopt this non-legally IHRA definition of anti-Semitism? Um, and secondly, just on this idea of reporting moving to, you know, towards non-journalists, essentially. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. And over to you. Uh, thanks very much for this panel. Uh, my name's Mel Bunce. I'm the head of the journalism department at City University of London. Um, and I guess I wanted to pick up on the, I think, very important point, um, if you, you made about um, journalists maybe self-censoring or being a bit scared to speak out on this. And I'm just seeing this as such a significant issue amongst my students, amongst people that are visiting. I'm sure lots of us work at organisations where you're actually scared to put on an event and talk about this, or you don't quite know how to find the language. So I guess I was just wondering if you have any advice or something constructive or hopeful uh, that we could say to young journalists in particular who are nervous about the flack that they get when they talk about this issue, when they speak publicly. Thanks. Excellent. Okay, I'll take one more and then add what I'm hearing online and then we'll turn over to our panellists. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, my name's Karen, another, another New Zealander. I think we're everywhere today. <laughs> yeah, this one of you. Um, yeah, so I'm a student at SOAS, but what I'd like to say is um, I've just been back in UK a few months and I've been horrified at the state of the reporting by people like The Guardian, Telegraph, the BBC, um, particularly at the beginning, the first few weeks, and the reporting of the marches um, in London, um, pretty unanimously um, describing them as hate marches. Now, I was on some of them. That was not true. How they could actually say that. I mean, there were many Jews marching. You knew that because they had signs saying Jews against whatever, you know. And to this, the way it was described, I was really shocked. And I mean, call me naive. Um, but I was wondering, I mean, it has changed a little bit, I think. But has there been any accountability for that slamming of, you know, it was just so one-sided and, yeah. So, yeah, I was just wondering if there been, had there been any accountability, particularly for what we describe as the reputable news outlets here in UK. Brilliant. Thank you for that question. There's some journalists in the room who might want to respond as well, but I won't put anyone under pressure. Um, 
let me just give you the last comment coming in online here. So early on, the hypocrisy in the coverage, especially against Ukraine, prompted a comment online that Palestine was decolonizing our minds. I found that confronting because Palestinian deaths should not be needed for your awakening. Okay, this is getting, but it is still an interesting position around whether there may be growing understanding of the different facets of colonialism. And I wonder how the panel responds to that. So over to you, panel. Um, let me start with you, Udi. What are your thoughts? Which ones do you want to tackle yeah. from what you've heard? And yeah, what are your thoughts? So thank you, first of all, everybody, for the very interesting questions. I will answer rather generally, if that's OK. Because the, there is a very important argument that I want to make, and this is the following. Decolonizing Palestine means also decolonizing Judaism. And what we need to decolonize ourselves from is Zionism. Zionism is Orientalist, racist ideology exported from Europe to the Middle East, made, has been become neutral to how we should think about who Jews are and how Jews should behave and who, uh, how Jews should perceive who they are and who are their enemies. Right? So in a way, when we think about uh, um, gender, for example, we think about, the, the, about heteronormativity as the, the standard, so to say, according to which each individual should orient themselves. When it comes to Judaism, this category or this heteronormativity of Judaism becomes Zionism. And this is uh, what the, the very important uh, point I wanted to make. And in very, what is really important to amplify again and again and again, Israel is, cannot speak in the name of Jews. Most of the Jewish population in the, in the world does not live in Israel. Indeed, the, there are legacies, Jewish legacies, Jewish philosophies that are contradicting to Judaism, to, sorry, to Zionism. When Zionism first emerged in Europe in 1897, it was really a minority, which represented a minority of uh, Jewish thinking. Jews were thriving in the Arab world, in the Muslim world, in places like Egypt, Morocco, Iraq, uh, Yemen, and yes, also in Palestine before 1948. Thank you. Thank you very much. Before you come in, Yasmin, I just wanted to add, and this is very, I think there's some, some interesting new questions, you know, some, the, can the panel comment about the framing of calling it Israel slash Gaza conflict? Um, you know, we had a lot of discussions internally about how to call this at this, this event, uh, because it maintains a narrative that Gaza is an active opponent of Israel instead of a victim of state aggression. I've noticed that Al Jazeera talks of the war on Gaza. Anyway, what is your opinion on the media's role in the rise in anti-Semitism? Just, mm. you, can, you can maybe comment at the very end, but uh, do you want to say something, uh, Yasmin? Okay, uh, thank you so much for all the interesting questions and comments. Um, so today, I think I was glued to the screen, like many of you, uh, uh, hearing the um, uh, proceedings in the ICJ. 
And um, one of the interesting uh, comments um, made and statements made by uh, South Africa was um, actually going back uh, and talking publicly while millions of people are watching about the Nakba. Uh, and they used uh, this, uh, this term, uh, which is uh, literally means the catastrophe, the uh, establishment of the State of Israel in 1948. So, um, and they go back to that moment to uh, understand that the, the displacement and the uh, expulsion and the torture and the killing, etc., of the Palestinians have been uh, uh, going on and continuous uh, since, uh, since decade. So uh, maybe the description of the genocide uh, that is uh, happening today was preceded by a, a, like a first genocide at, at that moment. And um, Looking at what, like, for me, for a Palestinian, my, my father was uh, born in 1948. He's, he's still alive. Uh, sorry, 1941. He's still alive. So he's, he's older than the state of Israel. And uh, his uh, birth certificate states Nazareth, Palestine. And um, for me, one of the narratives that I uh, insist on uh, repeating, and you heard me uh, say that uh, before in, in Berlin, uh, I, I repeat this story because I also think, like many uh, Palestinians, that it is now also the opportunity to understand where this originated from and for the violence and for our story not to be uh, depicted in any humanitarian uh, terms like the, um, the um, the question uh, you alluded to, uh, it has to be understood as a uh, political cause and uh, uh, and all of us have been maybe also uh, hearing the term settler colonialism now when uh, Israel is uh, being described in addition to apartheid and occupation, something that was not uh, as much used in the years uh, before, despite the fact that, of course, many academics, many Palestinians, many writers uh, have been uh, using this this kind of terminology. But now this terminology, a, lit, a bit by bit, is finding itself to uh, uh, in mainstream media and uh, honestly pushed by uh, uh, Palestinians against the uh, agenda, and I think it is agenda of uh, many uh, newsrooms in uh, in in the West. Um, so of course there is like the misconceptions of the individual people, but there is also like uh, stronger um, agenda and interest. Um, um, maybe another thing that comes to uh, my mind is when we uh, also want to shift the narrative and understand this as uh, uh, as a political plight uh, of of people under uh, colonialism and understand what uh, what should happen in in Palestine as a decolonization. Um, I think it is uh, very important not to see the Palestinians as this ultimate victims, as uh, destitute, and uh, only see them. Uh, and the, the dire situation, but also amplify their voices and uh, their stories um, and their strength and their resilience and their courage and their ability to resist uh, and their ability and joy in life uh, and the fact that they uh, come as a community uh, uh, to survive this and uh, the fact that they, um, uh, you know, want to to uh, to go back to um, 
to their homeland and, and build it and live in it in, uh, in, uh, in peace. Um, it's important also like to keep this uh, to keep this uh, alive and to humanize them uh, 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 through these. Um, yeah, I yeah I'll, I'll stop here and uh, I wanted to say something about alternative media, but I forgot already. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much to be said, but there'll there'll be opportunities. But perhaps I could. I mean, I think you you left you leave us on a positive, a more positive note. I mean, I I think that contrast. There was an article that the Guardian wrote, um, Nasreen Malik wrote a few weeks ago, uh, talking about the the the, the death of a people the idea of belonging you know so this narrative this narrative onslaught was an onslaught on people's memory destruction of museums destruction of symmetry cemeteries and so on but what i'm hearing you you say is something else that actually um there are opportunities in the icg being being one of them to put forward alternative narratives and shed you know sharp you know shine a spotlight on things that have been in the shadows, apartheid, segregation, and so on. And it's uncanny that it's South Africa mm. that 30 years ago uh, was yeah. just emerging out of apartheid. And 30 years ago, when another genocide, uh, the Rwanda one, was, was, was happening. So I think this is a very auspicious moment. Um, over to you, Mohammed. Um, your thoughts uh, on what you've heard and um, you know, conclusions from this conversation. Absolutely. I, I mean, and, and to Yasmin's point about about you know how to you know the story of a people and a story of of, of an entire um, culture. I think you know as as dire as the situation feels right now, um, if it wasn't for Palestinians being able to carry their own story through every single means of their own existence in 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 Palestine, outside of Palestine, I think the Palestine would have died a long time ago. And so I think the Palestinian identity, the Palestinian struggle isn't going anywhere. Um, and I think what we have learned and what we have been experiencing over the last three months is, is and on the topic of narrative, is this real, really uh, uncomfortable position of looking at the world and looking at the way the world works through a different lens. And that is true when it comes to how we feel about the media and the way that journalists do their job and the way that powerful media organizations are able to carry a narrative. But that's also true when it comes to um, the way that states operate and the positions they take and um, what constitutes international law and what bodies such as the United Nations uh, and the World Health Organization is able to actually do um, when faced with, with a real world scenario like this. And uh, a lot of those questions um, are not new to people that have been living through these experiences for a long time. And part of this, you know, and there was a question about how this uh, is being perceived in other parts of the world outside of the West, and I can guarantee you that it is night and day. And you can see it in the United Nations General Assembly, in the way that these countries vote, and the way that some countries, that you know, we frame this, uh, this whole narrative in through a Western lens, because I mean, because we're here in the United Kingdom talking about it, but we make the mistake of feeling that the Western lens is the one that defines the way the world sees everything. But by and large, and I mean, you can count up the votes at the at the at the UN that increasingly Western countries are 
isolated in the way that they speak on a global stage and in the way that their actions are understood and perceived. And I think we have seen over the last three months the way that Western countries will um, risk exposing their own uh, interests and their own positions um, on the na national stage, an international stage rather. And I think if for people that have come from the global south and have a lived experience over what a lot of these questions actually mean, there is little surprise in the way that things have transpired. Um, maybe it is a lot more brazen now, maybe we have a lot more access to people on the ground and, and immediate the immediacy of people's stories in Gaza has made things feel um, very different. And there is a power in that, in, in people being able to tell their own stories. But on a one hand, there is an aspect of this which speaks to the way that the world has always worked. This is the way conflict has always worked. The war in Iraq was carried out in a very similar fashion. There was an enormous amount of casualties. There was indiscriminate bombing of civilian areas. There was journalists that were targeted. There was uh, Iraqi voices that were silenced and that didn't have a space on the international uh, media networks. Their story wasn't told. The destruction of Baghdad was not told. We didn't see it happen. And because we didn't have access to those voices, but the way that that conflict and many other conflicts have carried themselves out speaks to a very specific way that international uh, diplomacy actually operates. And I think we are seeing that in a very brazen way now, and that should make us question how we feel about the world that we're living in. And on the question of journalists and, and journalism, um, I mean, we, we've, we've spoken about the journalists in, in Gaza and, and the, the, the roughly 100 journalists that are responsible for almost entirely for the way that we understand what is happening in Gaza. We, we owe very little to big establishment media organizations, Western media outlets, big name journalists for what we understand about Gaza because they have been able to shed very little light on what's go well, what's happening there to their own you know like uh, like and it is damning you know on their reputations and today we see uh, this horrible silence when it comes to their colleagues that have lost their lives in reporting on issues that are in the immediacy of their homes and the immediacy of their environment. They do not have the ability to leave the places that they are reporting from. And that, you know, when I was getting into journalism, there was this belief, this romantic belief that journalists are always a red line in conflict zones. And it is something that, you know, we uh, are seeing day in and day out is not true. Because when that is tested, what is the consequence? And there are no consequences. And so that then, rests on the journalists themselves to question their commitment to journalism, their commitment to the tenets of what it means to be a journalist, and their commitment to their own colleagues in the, in the line of fire, in the conflict zones. And increasingly, um, there has been this sense of, and somebody mentioned this, the self-censorship, this fear for people's careers, this fear for people's jobs, and I guarantee you every single person that is speaking and covering what is happening and, you know, as Afua said, every single uh, journalist of, of Muslim and Arab backgrounds, every, any, especially Palestinian journalists, understand that there are consequences for the way that they are able to do their job. And there are many people that are still doing it anyway. 
And so there is a lot of power that rests in the hands of journalists and journalists and, and journalism institutions and media organizations, and they are not exerting that power. There's a lot more that they can do to be able to defend the lives of their fellow journalists in Gaza, and they are not doing that. And I think a lot of us have to ask ourselves questions about what we can do and what we aren't doing. Thank you so much. And finally, I want to turn to Afua for the last uh, commentary. We've got a few minutes um, pick to pick up on some things you've heard, some things that other people haven't addressed, um, and your your, your closing uh, remarks on where we need to where we need to put our energies and efforts. Thank you, um, and thank you for the really excellent questions. Um, I, I'll try and round them up with two main points. I think one, you know, there's a really important question about accountability in the media's failure. Who is holding the media to account for these narratives, for these failings? For me, a big part of the puzzle that we haven't really discussed is actually about democracy. And I think that often really flawed media narratives are a symptom of a deeper problem with democracy. In Britain, I link it closely to the complete failure of the party in opposition. Our democracy is designed so that you have a party in power, you have an opposition party who holds the party in power to account. Similarly, the opposition should also be scrutinising media narratives, offering an opposing view, particularly in the early stages of this conflict, the British Labour Party was not functioning as a, as a serious or substantial opposition. And that meant that there really was no accountability. There was no accountability for government policy. There was no accountability for media narratives. And, you know, I think that the result that we're seeing British policy being uncritical and unquestioning of Israeli actions in Palestine is, is, a, is a consequence, partly, of the failure of opposition to hold uh, those decisions and those narratives to account. And it really is a serious failure. And I think that we need to always uh, remember that that is not how our political system is supposed to work. There is a huge section of public opinion in the population who is unrepresented completely by political leadership and by media leadership at the moment. And I think that's a problem that will have long-term consequences as well. Um, on the questions about colonialism, you know, this harks back to the conversation about narrative. For me, and, and I think um, Yasmin made this point so powerfully, the focus ultimately, eventually, when there did start to be a more critical appraisal of what was happening in Palestine, it focused so heavily on the humanitarian catastrophe, understandably, but also flattening out the wider context, the political background, and the history that has led to this point. And that is no surprise because uh, the media are generally totally incapable of really understanding in any deep way the history of colonialism, its lasting impact, the relevance of that history in so much contemporary social injustice and, and political action and conflict. And, you know, not to uh, oversimplify the experiences of people in Palestine, the Middle East and in other parts of the world like Africa and Asia, there is also a commonality in how the catastrophic consequences of colonialism, uh, both on economic development, on human rights, on climate, on all of the aspects of life in which we see the most injustice, are the ongoing legacy of that history. There's an, a, a deep and deliberate unwillingness to confront it in countries like Britain that have so much uh, to answer for that history. And that failure is preventing an understanding of what's happening. It's preventing the public being able to engage in a more meaningful way. And it is the underlying uh, motive, in my opinion. It is the agenda. The agenda has been to cover this in a way that obscures uh, a reckoning with the deeper colonial history, because that 
is a, an existential reckoning that needs to happen if, if countries like Britain are to actually be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And we've had no willingness or leadership to take Britain in that direction. And so I, in that respect, I think these things are connected. And to that extent, I really do agree that there has been an agenda. I don't know if it's an agenda that the media are necessarily conscious of, but it plays out in the ways that uh, everywhere in the world is covered outside Western Europe. Thank you so much. I mean, I think there is nothing else for me to say apart from to thank our panelists. This has been a fantastic um, introduction to our series of conversations on how to think about Gaza um, and the politics of narrative. I would like to say before thanking everyone, just that it's really important for ODI um, to be holding this conversation and it is part of our commitment to decolonizing the production of knowledge, how we understand and see the world. We've been, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be leading that agenda ODI and this is all part of what we're trying to get at. So thanks so much to all of you for being part of this conversation. Uh, thank you to Mohammed, thank you to Yasmin, thank you to Udi, and thank you to Afwa. And thank you to all of you for participating with all your fantastic questions and to the whole team at ODI. This was a cross-institutional effort of all our programmes at different levels um, and our communications team as well. So I want to thank all my colleagues. I'm just, you know, sharing the fruits of everybody's labours. So thank you to everybody um, and thank you to you all and have a nice evening.